Hi everybody and welcome to a new episode of CM Memes. Let me begin with a little meta talk about the podcast itself. In the past, I had some episodes which focused on a single topic. And this makes it possible to dive a little bit deeper into the subject, which is nice. But it only works for topics where I already have a quite settled opinion about. But on the other hand, the most interesting topics for me are the unsettled ones, where the ideas are still in flux. And this podcast is a perfect opportunity for me to reflect on these things. Now, you might say that it's a little bit strange to reflect on things while talking about them in a podcast. Shouldn't I first think and then talk? I agree, in principle, but in practice it doesn't work for me. When I'm just thinking quietly about some philosophical problem, my ideas tend to go in circles or in repeated patterns. It gets a little bit better if I start to write down idea fragments on a paper. Because then this sheet of paper is kind of outside of my mind, almost like a silent discussion partner. Of course, it only shows me my own ideas, but I can look at the different ideas at random times, and this helps me to break out of my thinking patterns. Even better than writing for myself is writing texts for others. So maybe you remember that I'm using WhatsApp channels as a kind of electronic lab book for my scientific work. I'm posting there my little insights and results, but also the problems and my thought stream about how to solve these problems. And I have observed repeatedly that I couldn't come up with a good idea by just thinking quietly about the problem. But once I started to type my ideas live into the WhatsApp stream, knowing that others are reading it, suddenly much better ideas came up. So don't ask me what's behind this phenomenon, but having a recipient for your thoughts somehow creates a completely new energy. Well, and a similar effect happens when I'm talking into my microphone, recording a podcast and at the same time reflecting upon some problem. So this is the reason why I want to talk about unsolved problems in this podcast. I enjoy this extra energy that comes from having an audience, even though my audience is still tremendously small here. But there's one thing that bothers me. And this is that I never manage to cover all the topics which I have planned to talk about. You know, I'm normally collecting material throughout the week. Whenever I come across an interesting idea in a book or in a podcast, I immediately make a short note. And for me, such small idea fragments are really the seeds from which the worldview is finally growing. This is the raw data which I use to update my world model. This is exactly the unexpected input which you need to advance your understanding of the world. And so after each week, I end up with quite a lot of these small idea fragments. And I would like to talk about all of them in my podcast, but somehow the linear nature of talking alone without a real conversation partner, this prevents me every time from covering all the topics. You know, the language 
in which we have to talk. And also the thinking process by itself have a lot of momentum, or I should better say inertia. They tend to drive you in a certain direction, which is mainly determined by the internal logic of thinking. So, for example, I have a strong desire to connect one sentence to the next in a logical way, if possible. I like smooth transitions. And this is probably because I got used to this way of thinking and writing in my work as a university teacher. When you have to write a lecture script or something like that, you should do it in a didactically optimal way, right? First provide all the necessary context and then present all the facts or whatever in the best possible order. So I'm used to bind ideas together in that way and therefore I sometimes choose my next sentence more because it better fits to the last sentence instead of going into the direction I originally planned to go. And another effect which I often observe is that while I'm talking I'm discovering some new details of the problem at hand and they fascinate me and they motivate me to think about these details instead of moving on to the next major thing. So I resemble somebody who has traveled to a foreign country and has planned to visit lots of different cities but as soon as he arrives at the first city he likes it so much that he spends the whole remaining holidays in the single spot. So I still have to figure out some natural way to solve this problem but for the time being I have decided to solve it brute force. This time I have written down six points on a piece of paper which do not have much in common but which I will force myself to talk about. And this time I will really not care about smooth transitions. My first point on the list should be very short. One of the topics which are explicitly mentioned in the podcast description is minimalism. And I have actually talked about this several times in former episodes. But in the moment I cannot imagine that I will come back to this topic in the future. It appears to me that minimalism is a quite finite or I might even say shallow topic. It doesn't have much philosophical depth. It basically amounts to constantly observing yourself and trying to find out what is really important and good for you. And if you discover things or activities or habits which are not so good for you, you try to get rid of it. Of course, without hurting anybody and without damaging the world, but with determination. And if you are doing this consistently for an extended period of time, you will be surrounded by less things, but the ones which have remained will be perfectly suited for you. And in a similar way, 
you will be spending less time with activities that don't really make you happy. So you have more time for the ones which are really good for you. I think this is the basic core of minimalism. And all you can say about this topic on top of this is about specific techniques to achieve this goal. And there are already many other books and podcasts which talk about these specific techniques. So I don't need to do that. And moreover, when you have listened to some of my older podcast episodes, you may know that I don't really believe in these techniques. I mean, of course we can learn useful techniques from other people and then apply this to our own life. This sharing of knowledge is even one of the key features which makes us humans so successful. However, this can only work well if the system to which you want to apply these external techniques can be fully controlled by you. So if somebody is giving you a cooking recipe and you get exactly the right ingredients and you have the correct instruments, this will probably succeed. Or if I read up in the internet some specific technique for computer programming, I will be able to incorporate this into my own software. Because in my software I can control every bit. But when the system which you want to modify involves your own psyche, then it's not so simple to implement techniques which you learn from other people. We usually don't know very much about our own psyche and we are certainly not in control of it. And so when a minimalist tells you to store away a tool immediately after you have used it, but this is simply against your natural workflow, then I doubt that you can implement this advice. You may try it a few times, fail, and then hate the whole idea of minimalism. And so I think we should grow naturally into new habits. I became a minimalist without even knowing that such a thing exists. And so I think when it comes to life habits, everybody should figure out by himself or herself what's the best way to live. Only you yourself know what's good for you. I know for myself that I feel most happy in a minimalistic environment, but if you like to be surrounded by many things and have a huge spectrum of activities, do it, just do it, be happy. The next point on my list is also quite trivial and so I don't want to spend too much time on this too. So a few episodes ago, triggered by some personal health issues, I ended up talking about our healthcare system, a topic which I never expected to appear in my podcast. And it probably won't in the future, but there's one more related point I would like to add. I find it crazy how much our media and also lots of normal people are obsessed with their health. I'm not talking about people here who already have some severe condition in their bodies. I'm talking about people with a normal level of health. So let's simplify things for the moment and imagine a linear scale of health. 
or maybe what I'm really interested in is well-being, not health, but the two are closely related, right? So at any moment in time, you could probably put yourself somewhere on this linear scale. If you put yourself to the very right of the scale, you feel absolutely great. No pain whatsoever, full of energy. All your senses work perfectly. Your muscles are sufficiently strong. Your body is flexible. You can move any way you want and nothing hurts. If you are at the very left of the scale, you feel miserable. Maybe you cannot see without glasses. You cannot probably hear without hearing aid. You mainly lost your sense of smell. And you have many parts of your body which became stiff and which hurt if you strain the muscles. Or you may have chronic pain. So you get the picture. But then we have this whole middle part of the scale. Not a perfect health, but endurable. Most people may spend the first part of their lives in this middle and upper regime. But then, as we grow older, health naturally deteriorates. So the mean value around which our daily health is fluctuating is slowly moving from the right part of the scale towards the left one. And up to recently, this process of aging has been considered to be something natural and normal. And I still consider it this way. But the modern trend is obviously that we want to prevent aging if possible. And this is completely understandable. Why would we not try to remove all suffering from our life if this is technically possible? Why not living up to 100 years without any health issue and then suddenly die? Sure, I would also like that. But the point is, we are not there yet. But in spite of that, there's a huge industry who tries to make money by keeping us in a constant state of fear about our health. There is, for example, the press who writes one article after the other about how to properly get our nutritions how to have enough vitamin, avoid eating too much meat, not drinking too much alcohol, and doing sports and buying a very expensive mattress for your bed because the sleeping time is very important for your health. And of course you should air your room frequently, but also not too frequently. Maybe they even prescribe you how often you should visit the toilet or how often you have a shower and how long you have a shower and which kind of shower soap you use. Some of them may be really dangerous for your skin, you know. People are counting how much calorie they have in their food, how much fat it contains, how much carbohydrates, blah, blah, blah. Some of them seem to not even care how their food tastes anymore, if it's only healthy. And then, of course, we have the other part of the industry, which earns money from monitoring your health state, transforming this multidimensional state of your body into a few key numbers which are then compared to some lists or to some range of values which are considered to be normal, but once you are a little bit above or below, it's unnormal and should be treated. And at this point, a third part of industry comes into the play, the industry which lives from treating your body. If your knee has grown old, you simply get a new one. So this money-making industry is certainly one side of the problem. But the other side is our own behavior. I am 
increasingly becoming aware of people, in particular elder people, who are spending a crazy amount of time with reading information about possible health issues, with checking their own bodies or get their bodies checked by doctors, and by receiving treatments. And very often these treatments are not over after one application, but they have to be repeated regularly, which of course helps the industry to earn more money. So the simple question I like to ask here is whether this extreme care about our own health is really worth it. Is the whole point of our existence to struggle to keep our body as healthy as possible? I came recently up with a little metaphor that describes the situation. Maybe I have already told you this on the podcast and I forgot it. If so, I'm sorry. But anyway, imagine somebody who is driving a car. As he's driving along, he's constantly monitoring all the different instruments of the car. How much fuel is there? What is the temperature of the engine? Are there any strange sounds in the car? What is the air pressure in the tires? And when he is not checking his instruments, he is looking out and trying to find the next car repair shop or the next fuel station. So the car is all his concern. And he continues like that year after year. He drives through the country looking only at repair shops and fuel stations and the instruments in the car. And finally the car seriously starts to break down. At one point it simply stops. And so the driver goes out of his car in the middle of nowhere, far away from any fuel station, which he didn't do a long time. And suddenly he becomes aware that he is in a beautiful landscape. And then comes some shocking insight. He has been driving through wonderful landscapes all the time. But he has only paid attention to his car. This car was just a vehicle. The purpose of it was to bring him to different nice places. But now it stopped moving, despite all the regular repairs. And now he can't go anymore to nice places. The next topic on my list is the loss of trust. I think when future generations will be looking back at our present time, they will conclude that a loss of trust on all levels is really what characterizes our present stage. We have lost trust in our politicians, of course, maybe even in the idea of democracy. And after many of us have turned away from religion and have replaced this by a belief in science, many of those peoples now also start to lose trust in the scientific method, or at least in practical applications of science. And as I have expressed, I think, quite clearly during my past podcast episodes, I'm also one of these people. To be clear from the beginning, I did not lose my trust in the scientific method per se, I consider it still the only reliable way to systematically improve our knowledge about the world. But in my opinion, we have implemented the scientific method 
in a very wrong way. First of all, are many scientific institutions not really open to the full spectrum of questions which could be scientifically investigated? But on the other hand, the same institutions are applying the scientific method to regions which, in my opinion, are not suitable for scientific understanding. So, examples of topics where science has refused to look at, at least until very recently, would be UFOs, all kinds of so-called paraphysical phenomena, or even things like cold fusion or anti-gravity research. Now, gladly, the situation in the UFO field is changing recently, but I still see only very few scientists working on these other fields. But I would like to focus now on this other problem, that science has moved to fields where the strict application of the scientific method is not really possible anymore. And these fields include all the highly complex systems, in particular living systems. Maybe you are getting slightly annoyed now. Is he really saying that all the life sciences are not really sciences? Well, it depends on which standards you are holding for a good science. How robust and how general do you want your scientific results to be? What are your standards for the predictive power of your scientific models? You know, due to my strange career path, I have now maybe a little bit better viewpoint on this problem than the average scientist. I first worked in the field of man-made quantum nanostructures. And these are systems which are basically built atom layer by atom layer. So researchers working in this field have really a complete control over their systems. And because they precisely know what they are dealing with, they can develop models of a very high quality. So for example, you can design a custom-made quantum nanostructure for the purpose of testing a very specific hypothesis. For example, you may have a mathematical model of this quantum nanostructure And the model predicts what happens if you excite this nanostructure with a short laser pulse of a certain frequency and intensity and duration. Let's say the prediction is that a few nanoseconds later, this nanostructure will emit a certain pulse of light by itself. And this light will have a certain spectrum, so a certain distribution of intensities over photon energies. Then you can go to the lab do the measurement and compare your measured spectrum to the predicted one. And in this type of physics, the measured curves and the predicted curves very often lie practically on top of each other. And if you repeat the measurement a day later or a year later, you get the same spectrum, the same results. Because your quantum nanostructure doesn't change over time. It's a well-defined system. And for this reason you also don't need a big error analysis. You don't have this issue with error bars and p-values as you have it in life sciences. And also the models are relatively easy to interpret. So for example, each of the peaks in your emission spectrum corresponds to a certain collective excitation of your electrons and the holes and the phonons in your system. There is only a relatively small set of ingredients which we have to keep in mind in order to understand what's going on. And so the explanations are simple. In my definition, a good science has to produce simple, understandable models. 
And the knowledge has to be so robust that you can build a technology on top of it. So that was the situation I was used to when I was working in this field of quantum nanostructures. But then I moved on to become a biophysicist. And in particular, I was developing mathematical models about the behavior of individual living cells. For example, you can measure how these cells are moving around in a petri dish. So the experimentalists are taking a bunch of cells from the incubator and put them all into the same petri dish. They are all of the same cell type, so you also might expect that their motion patterns are very similar. But this is absolutely not the case. Even if you make sure that all the cells in your petri dish have exactly the same genes, even then you will find a wide spectrum of motion patterns. And even the spectrum of patterns is not constant over time. It changes over the course of hours, and if you repeat the same experiment next day or next week, you may get completely different results. And this is because each individual cell is a complete, intelligent living being. Even if all the cells in the experiment are living in the same environment and have the same genes, they are free to read from these genes whatever they wish. They have lots of epigenetic freedom and they are using this freedom. And each individual cell is making slightly different decisions in which kind of information it should read in this moment from the genes and which kind of proteins it should express and how it should be behave. These cells have a lot of strategies available. And probably they also work with a lot of randomness. So the point is that every cell is a complex system and has millions and millions of internal parameters, all of which we cannot control experimentally. So it's absolutely no wonder that they are so unpredictable. And to be honest, during all the years when I was working in the field of cell biophysics, I had the feeling that I'm not really doing science. I never had the feeling that we are making progress in understanding these cells. But then this was my impression as a physicist working in a lab which also contained a lot of biologists. It seemed to me that for the biologists this problem did not exist. They had the feeling that they make some progress. But I suspect that this is simply because they have a different standard of science. They would never expect that you have a model which describes your system so well that you can predict a new experiment and then do the measurement and find exactly what you have predicted, not only qualitatively, but quantitatively. This simply doesn't happen in biophysics. Individual cells are simply too complex to be modeled mathematically. But the funny thing is, at some point, we did some experiments with cell colonies. And such a cell colony consists of 10,000 of cells packed densely together. And because they are packed so densely, they cannot move as freely as they could on a petri dish. They are restricted by their neighbors. And this leads to very interesting collective effects. Because, as it turns out, the cell colony as a whole can be modeled quite well. You can describe how it grows over time and how the individual cells are moving within the colony simply because the freedom of each individual cell is so much restricted in the colony. In the way, the cells are now more like particles. Particles that can divide from time to time 
and which can push their neighbors around. And this is a situation which you can easily describe with physical equations. So, when I say that I also started to distrust science, I'm mainly referring to all the cases where people are trying to describe highly complex systems in a mathematical model. It may be possible to describe these systems qualitatively. And this is what the biologists are doing all the time. For example, they are knocking out one of the genes of the cells and then they observe how the shape and the structure and the behavior of the cells is changing accordingly. By doing a lot of these gene modification experiments, they try to figure out which role each of the proteins is playing. But very often it plays multiple roles, or different roles depending on the external circumstances of the cell. And there also are proteins which have functions that can in the worst case be replaced by other proteins. So all is very, very complicated. And my feeling is that this kind of science is simply producing a long list of observations, many of which are not even repeatable in new experiments. But I don't see any big picture emerging from all these facts. And even if we in the future will have such a picture, it will probably be so complex that a human cannot really comprehend it. Maybe at this point we will have artificial intelligence, which can reliably predict what will happen if I change one of the genes. And this may be enough for practical applications. But for me this is not actual science. I agree with Richard Feynman here that you only truly understand a system if you can build it by yourself. And if you have really understood the function of each of the system's subcomponents, then you can even exchange these subcomponents by different ones, which however have the same function. This is real understanding. Okay, I'm already talking much too long about this topic, but just some final remark. A while ago, I was so frustrated about how little we understand of complex systems that I needed to do something in order to regain my trust in science. As it turned out, it didn't take much. I only needed to read a single article of good old hard solid-state physics. Next, I would like to share with you a nice idea that I picked up in a podcast interview with Michael Levin. So Levin is one of my heroes. He's a professor for biology in Tufts University, and he's doing very interesting work on developmental and synthetic biology, and in particular on bioelectricity. And in this podcast, they talked about how it is possible that evolution finally could produce highly intelligent organisms. So if somebody hears for the first time about the process of natural evolution, he or she may find it incredible that something as complex as our brain could evolve in this way. And one argument that makes it a little bit easier to believe this is that we should extend our notion of information processing beyond brains. So in the broader public, I guess only relatively few people are aware 
that even single cells are capable of very complex information processing. Of course, these cells don't use neural networks for computing, but they have networks of reacting biochemicals. And it is easy to show that such a biochemical reaction network is actually a universal computer. So everything that you can compute with a modern digital computer can in principle also be computed with biochemical reactions inside a cell. Of course, the computing in a cell is slower compared to a modern computer and the memory capacity of cells is quite limited, but in principle they can do the same kind of computations. And these biochemical signaling molecules, which are doing the computation, they are more or less diffusing freely around in the cytoplasma. So we don't have a rigid network structure like in the brain. And now it's interesting to compare this with, for example, a hive of bees or some other social insects. We know that these large group of insects together have a very high level of collective intelligence. So, for example, they can collectively construct buildings which have a size that drastically exceeds the size of each individual insect and also the building time is much larger than the lifetime of each individual insect. But just like the signaling molecules in the cell, the bees in their hive also don't have a rigid structure. They move around and it's more appropriate to see this hive as a liquid actually, because each individual insect can be replaced and can move around relatively freely. So we can actually view this hive of bees as a liquid brain. And once we extend our notion of information processing systems in this way, we see that intelligence is not something which is specific to brains. Distributed intelligent systems are found everywhere in nature. Now, if a single cell is already capable of information processing, we can transfer this ability to more complex organisms. Because, for example, if several cells join together to form a multicellular organism, the neighboring cells can be connected, for example, via gap junctions. And two cells in direct contact can exchange information through these gap junctions. So you can imagine that now two information processing systems become coupled to a larger one. And eventually you can imagine a whole group of cells working together as a single unified information processing system. So there's a continuum from single cells to multicellular organisms up to the very complex brains we have in mammals, for example. But now the host of the podcast asked Levin an interesting question. He asked, why is it that evolution obviously has this strong trend towards higher and higher intelligence? I mean, evolution is simply the interplay of reproduction, mutation and selection. Nothing in these rules suggests that there will appear some intelligent organisms after a while. And at this point, Levin came up with a quite interesting argument. So let's imagine some abstract space of all possible living organisms. For simplicity, just imagine a 3D space and a lots of dots inside the space. Each dot or point represents one type of organism which is capable of surviving for a certain time. And let's further assume that dots which are adjacent in space 
are also genetically closely related. So evolution can move from one of these points to the neighboring one by a single mutation, for example. And now if you start evolution at a specific single point, maybe corresponding to the first living cell on Earth, you will see that evolution is gradually exploring the space of possible organisms starting from this individual point. And let's assume that there is no external force whatsoever which might drive evolution into a certain direction. Let's say evolution can move from each point to any of the neighbors with equal probability. Then this process resembles very closely what we know as diffusion in physics. So if you bring a very small container with, say, a red gas into your living room and you open the container, you will see that the gas is moving out and it will spread in all directions and very quickly it will fill the whole room with equal density. And in this diffusion process, there's also no force which is pulling the gas molecules away from the original container. The only reason why the molecules have a higher probability to go away from the container is that there are more paths leading away than paths leading to the container. And the same happens in this evolutionary process, which is exploring the space of possible organisms. But now comes the important point. We normally think that the ability to compute is something highly advanced. But as we have seen, even molecular reactions can do it. And on the other hand, there seem to be no limits to intelligence. Our human intelligence is definitely not the maximum what could be achieved. So maybe if we consider the totality of points in the space of all possible organisms, maybe most of these points have a certain degree of intelligence, and maybe almost all of them have more intelligence than this original cell which started the whole evolutionary process. So as evolution is expanding out from this original point, it will almost necessarily reach some points of quite high intelligence. So this was the idea I wanted to share with you. But now I remember another little gold nugget from Michael Levin. And this has to do with the transition from single cellular to multicellular life. For a very, very long time in evolutionary history, we only had single cellular life. Each of these individual cells was aware, in quotation marks, of its boundaries. It made a clear distinction between itself and what is outside of the cell membrane. And each cell had the selfish goal to survive. So every time the conditions outside of the cell membrane changed, either in a useful or in a harmful way, the cell could detect this by receptors and use computations to decide what to do with the situation. But now let's say that two of these cells have accidentally made contact and established such a gap junction. Then the cells may interpret this as a harmful situation and try to get rid of the other one, but maybe they don't even notice it. After all, they don't have any way to see themselves from the outside. Maybe they consider everything as a part of themselves what is directly connected to the biochemical reaction network, in particular this information processing network. And when the two cells have connected their information processing networks by the gap junction, 
then they effectively form one organism. So now suddenly this double cell forms a new unit which tries to survive in the environment. If you think of it, we all define our borders quite arbitrarily. What will happen if we connect our brains directly with technology such as Neuralink?